0: We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to introduce you to some new friends. Uh, these are friends that, well, they're friends, some new friends that you might have heard. We, we, we heard about Sam and Samantha last time, right? Well, now we're going to hear about a lot of my friends that begin with Jay. Um, I'm going to introduce you first to Jack. He's a Christian. Uh, his life is spinning out of control. His marriage is spinning out of control. His job is spinning out of control. Ordinary life is spinning out of control. Just the normal roles and responsibilities and, and everyday endeavors are spinning out of control. And the reason they are is because pornography has taken over Jack's life. Um, pornography is Jack's drug. And he's addicted. And it's decreating him peace by piece, by piece. Jack wants to change, though. In fact, he's tried several times to change. He has so desired that God would change him. I mean, he's tried everything. He's done internet software. He's done accountability groups. He's tried just saying no. He's read his Bible more, prayed more. He's talked to his pastor, and he turned his phone off at night so he's not tempted. Time out. All of these things that I just mentioned are really good things. So I'm not deriding these things. I'm saying they are good things to do, okay? But what he doesn't know is that as he keeps trying and trying and trying, he just can't seem to change. It just kind of slips through his fingers. He might have a, a week or a day, possibly a month, but then it's back to his drug and back to his addiction. So what do you do when you just can't change? Jack's. what do you do when you just can't change? Let me introduce you to another friend. Her name is Jill, and she's a Christian, and she's married to Jack. And she's humiliated by all of Jack's sexual sin. In fact, she feels uh, worthless and unwanted and ugly. She feels like she's not good enough. She feels rejected. Jill struggles with two powerful dynamics that work like pistons throughout her day. When one's up, the other one's down, and then the other one goes up. At some point, she has this deep insecurity and shame that reaches the very core of her being. And at other points, she just bubbles up in rage and anger in her thoughts and her words and her deeds towards Jack. Jill is stuck. She's stuck in her pain. Of being sinned against. And she's stuck in her rage as an agent of sin herself. So, what do you do when you're stuck? What do you do? Janet is not a Christian, but she's married to one, and his name is Jim. Janet grew up in a Christian home, she knows all the Bible stories. She knows all about God's laws, about what perfect human beings look like and how human flourishing actually happens. She knows all the basic doctrines. She knows about sin and she knows about salvation. She knows about the cross. She knows about the eternal future. She knows about the church. She knows all these doctrines. But as she would tell you, even at one time, she believed it. She would have said, I believe those doctrines. She would have said, I'm a Christian, but not today. Not today she doesn't because something happened. When she needed God the most, he didn't show up. He wasn't there. He didn't care. And she would say, what good is it to believe in God when he isn't there when you really, really need him? So Janet lost her faith in God. She has data about God. But it's not real to her. If Janet came up to you and told you her story, what would you tell her? Jim, Janet's husband, is confused about life change, which theologians call sanctification. He looks at his wife's experience and he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know how to interpret. He doesn't know how to handle it. I mean, what do you do with what happened to his wife? There's no categories for him. And so he doesn't, how do you help? What does he do? So what does he do? He does nothing because he doesn't know what to do. And then he looks at his own Christian life and he realizes, man, I've tried everything in the Christian life. I, I've gotten serious and rigorous in spiritual disciplines. I've, I've applied all the Holy Spirit techniques I can muster. I've read every book about being filled, being led, being carried, Being anointed by the Holy Spirit, and it hasn't took. I've let go and I've let God. I've surrendered all. I've followed and applied every how-to and biblical principle there is from every walk of life. And my life is the same. I can't help my wife. I can't help myself. No change. Except, he would say, I've added some more anxiety. (laughs) I've added some more confusion to my life. I've added some more disappointment and disillusion because I've tried thing after thing after thing and nothing seems to reach me. Nothing seems to grasp me. God seems like the great unknown to me. So what does Jim do now? Jim will tell you he does nothing because he doesn't know what to do. Here's our question. What do we do in sanctification? What do you do in sanctification? Nothing, everything, a division of labor. God's got his end of the deal, you got your end of the deal. What are the dynamics of sanctification? These are my four friends. We are going to look at our passage today and apply the passage, apply the gospel to these four friends who are you and me and who are people in the This church, other churches, they're everywhere. We are all these friends, right? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Oh, God, we thank you that your words, your speaking are your acting. And so we come, we come to where you actually work and move and that your active personal presence is moving in our life and in the world. And so, Lord, move, work, show up, come down, break in, reveal yourself. And in so doing, Lord, put us back together together raise us from the dead, lift us up out of the pit, regenerate and renew and revive and heal, make us loving people, send us out with mission and good works. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start with Jim. What do we do? What do we do in sanctification? What do we do in life change? What's the answer to that? I want you to look at verse 4. Verse 4 introduces us to another angle on life change or another angle on sanctification. Remember, Romans 5 through 8 is about life change. Romans 5 through 8 is about how to experience the gospel. Romans 5 through 8 is taking Romans 1 through 4 and showing how 1 through 4, which is the gospel, justification, good news, not good advice, how it makes a difference in our life. Romans 5 through 8 is about the the power and the reality of the gospel landing in someone's life and restructuring, remaking, renewing, healing, sanctifying them. Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8 individually, this is important to know, are not saying everything there is to say about life change. But they are saying each of them from a different angle, highly selective, central, core, powerful truths about life change in Romans 8 we're introduced to something new it's called life change is, is looked at as this way a life according to the spirit you see that in verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit i want you to notice this angle of life change it's about walking it's about building a life do you see what's happening This angle of life change is talking about a way to live a life. So a way to live a marriage, a way to parent, a way to interact with your career, a way to relate to your pain and suffering, a way to actually see yourself and deal with the complexities of you, a way to deal with relationships and friendships, a way to relate to conflict and interpersonal breakdowns that happen in our life. It's a way to live a life, and it's a way according to the flesh. I mean, ac- not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So you get that? Find that word flesh. It's not according to the flesh. Here's what's happening. We've heard about the sinful condition, right, that Paul's talked about. It's called the sinful nature. It's called original sin. And, and because of Adam, we come into the world with the condition, the dark mass of self-absorption, a dark Lord power in all of us, Right? Now, what Paul wants to do is he wants to take this word flesh and he wants to help you see what that condition looks like. It's like a magnifying glass that says, here's what the sin condition is all about. It's fleshy. Flesh means self-effort. Flesh means self-reliance. One theologian puts it this way. Flesh means a self salvation project. So not according to the flesh is doing this. It's it's living a life that's not according to the insatiable, driving, craving need to be your own savior. A way of walking and living a life and relating to everything in life is according to the spirit this passage is talking about. And is not according to self-reliance and self-effort and trying to be your own savior. You with me so far? So what is that, though? Specifically, what is this life in the spirit, this sanctification, as Paul would call it? How do we do it? I mean, what do we do? Again, nothing, everything, division of labor. What is our role? How are we to look at sanctification We've heard all about the gospel and what God does. Now, what about, what do we do? Here's how we're going to answer it. If sanctification is swimming, a way of life, a way to build your messy life, if sanctification is swimming, the pool is not self-effort through the law. And it's not a mixture of water and chlorine. The pool is not Self-effort mixed with grace. Sanctification, if it's swimming, because it is. You're swimming, you're drinking it, you're treading water, trying to keep above the surface, but you're swimming in the pool and the water of the gospel. This means sanctification is bringing the gospel to those areas of your life that you struggle with. Bringing the gospel to your interrelational conflicts. Bringing the gospel to those inordinate painful emotions that you feel. Bringing the gospel to your career. Bringing the gospel to how you treat people. Bringing the gospel to how you handle money. Bringing the gospel to every area of our life because it's a, a way of living. It's a life according to the spirit, or we could say a life according to the gospel. You know, you say, ah, oh, that's great, Jeff. That's great. That's, that's really wonderful. Thank you for that. You're welcome, first of all. You're very, very welcome. Second of all, this is what Paul did to Peter. Peter. Peter refused to eat with Gentile Christians in Galatia because he was afraid of what the Jewish Christians in Galatia would think of him. So he became a racist. And Paul went to the root of Peter's racism. I just, I, I feel like we blow over that so quickly. The second greatest apostle who ever lived was a racist. As an apostle, as a church planner. So here's the next question. Do you think you can avoid sin like the apostles? Obviously the answer to that is no, right? So Paul goes to the root of Peter's sin. He goes to the root of Peter's racism. He wants real life change in Peter. He's going after genuine sanctification in Peter. So I want you to listen. Listen to what he does. Listen to what he says. First of all, I wish I was there. I wish I could have seen it because this is the first UFC televised live event ever. When Peter came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face. Can you imagine? What does that look like? Opposing Peter to his face. I kind of like that. But anyhow, when Peter came to Antioch, I posed into his face, I saw that his and Barnabas's, it was so big. It was this sin was so huge and so influential. What Peter did is that everyone in that church planning group got swept in it. All the leaders in the Galatian church got swept up in it. And here you have Paul, the only one that didn't. Can you imagine? Incredible. He says, I posed him to his face. I saw that his and Barnabas's conduct, now get this, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What's the root issue of Peter's problem? Paul would say, it's not in line. It's not in the pool of the gospel. Peter's no longer swimming in the pool of the gospel. Peter got out of the pool and started swimming in a cesspool called self-reliance and self-justification self-righteousness where Peter was looking for approval and acceptance from people and from others and from his status and left the approval and the acceptance and the status and the righteousness and the wonder of what the gospel gives. He went out of line of the gospel. Peter's behavior was out of step with the gospel. Peter's racism was out of step with the gospel. Peter's need to feel approved and accepted and looked on by others and affirmed by others was out of step with the gospel. Notice what Paul does not say to Peter. Peter, stop it, stop it. Stop being a racist. I mean, it's okay to say stop it. How could you, Peter? You're an apostle. You're being such a bad witness. You know, use that little kind of guilt motivation. It's like, man, you know, you're the reason why the church has such a bad reputation. Start having your daily quiet time again, will you? Peter, come on. I bet you haven't had your quiet time today. That's why, you, you know, it's like a Snickers bar. You need a Snickers bar. Get your daily quiet time. You're having a horrible day. Peter, you need to fast and feel bad for two days, then you'll be okay, right? Repent, and God will bless you again, Peter. That's not what he says. Paul brings the gospel to Peter's racism, and the gospel changes Peter. The gospel goes to that area, because what Paul ends up saying to him is saying, look, you know the grace of God. You know that God had grace on you and it had nothing to do with your performance and nothing to do with your race and nothing to do with your status. So, how can you relate to others that way? God doesn't relate to you that way. You have all the acceptance and all the approval and all the status you ever need, all the righteousness you ever need. And Peter changed. So swim in the pool of the gospel. You want to know what sanctification is about? It's about swimming in the pool of the gospel. So please hear me. I know that we don't understand that fully, but at least jump into that pool. And as a church, let's figure out how to do that together. Let's learn to do that. Let's figure out what it means to apply the gospel to this area. Let's figure out what it looks like to swim in the waters of grace alone in every area of our life and to push it into areas that are problem areas and to push it into relationships that are difficult and push it into areas that we need to change and how we handle this and how we relate to that, right? Let's do that. But Let's not say there's another pool out there. Just because we don't understand this one. Okay. I'm kind of getting nosy, are not I? All right, here we go. How does the gospel specifically change us though? It's okay, we're going to swim in the water, but how does being in this pool and swimming, sanctifying reality in this pool, how does it specifically work? How did it specifically change Peter? How does it getting back in line with the gospel change a life? Well, let's look at Jack, because he struggles with pornography. Jack can't seem to change. Remember, he's tried everything. Remember the list? Software, accountability groups, just saying no, reading the Bible, praying more, talking to his pastor, turning his phone off at night. Please hear me. That is all important and necessary stuff. Nothing on that list should be forgotten and not used in this struggle. If you need to atrophy a muscle, you need to atrophy it. You need to not exercise it. You need to avoid that thing. You need to stay away from that thing. You don't want to exercise it and keep it strong. You want to weaken it by not exercising it. You want to atrophy it by staying away from that muscle. So all those things are good ways to atrophy it, but they will not change it. All the internet software in the world is not going to change you. Your heart has to change. And so now we're talking about real sanctification, we're not just talking about changing behavior and avoiding certain sins and fleeing temptations, all great things, all necessary things. We've talked about how if you have a cup and it's full of water and I hit the cup, water spills on the ground. I say, why is there water on the ground? You say, because you hit the cup. I say, no, because there's water in the cup is why there's water on the ground. All my hitting did was reveal what's already there. What comes out of our heart has always been there. It's just a situation, a relationship, a person, a comment hits it and reveals it. But it is necessary when you are trapped in an addiction like that or something where you just can't change to lessen the blows of the fist hitting the cup to get, instead of going like this, exercising the muscle. That's why those things are good. Atrophy it. But ultimately, to change a heart, the heart must change. Rudolf Baltman says it this way. Can someone sinking in a swamp pull himself out by tugging upward on his own hair? That is a great image. But how often is that our view of life change? I'm in a swamp. I'm in a swamp. the answer is you have to have someone from the outside come and rescue you. You can't be your own rescuer. And the gospel is the announcement of someone from the outside coming in and rescuing you. And in sanctification, in areas in which you're stuck, in areas of your life in which it's hard and hasn't seen change, you need that Water to swim in that water to see your heart change. How? Let's look at it. Look at verses 2 and 3. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin or as a sin offering he condemns sin in the flesh. Now I want you to follow the flow of thought here. This is very, very important. God did. This is the main idea of the whole thing. God did. Did what we couldn't do through the law. God did what we couldn't do through self effort. God did it because we can't. He rescues. How did God do it? What did God exactly do? The answer is He sets you free. He places you and me in a new realm of life and freedom. He ends the bondage and the realm of sin and death once and for all, finally completed, finished, no The first thing we learned about life change according to the Spirit was last week. Do you remember that? And we found that in verse one. What did we learn? We learned that a life that walks around In the spirit is a life that's breathing the fresh air of no condemnation. It's a life that's been moved into a realm, a way of living... A kingdom in which there's no condemnation. So there's no condemnation in your marriage. There's no condemnation in your parenting. That means no condemnation should be influencing how you treat others. It should be affecting us, how we relate to different races and cultures. No condemnation should be pushing us and shaping us in how we handle money. No condemnation is the pool we swim in. No condemnation and where are friendships and relationships. And don't miss this. No condemnation when you have to speak hard things. No condemnation when you've got to intervene. No condemnation when you have to discipline. No condemnation. We learned that, right? That was the first thing we learned about how to walk in the spirit. Here's the second. No bondage. No bondage. No more slavery No more being in prison. The fresh air of no bondage. So here's the point. Whether Jack realizes it or not, believes it or not, or experiences it or not, for him right now, as a Christian, for someone who trusts in Jesus to be his Savior, for someone who recognizes, I can't deal with sin on my own. Someone's got to deal with it, and I'm not going to try to atone for my sin. Someone who realizes... I do not have righteousness. I do not have acceptability. I do not have worth and value and acceptability to make myself right with God. I need someone else's righteousness. When someone gets that and trusts in Jesus, that person, whether they realize it or not, there's no condemnation. They're out of the realm of condemnation. They're in a new realm called no condemnation. And they're also out of the realm of bondage. And they're in a new realm of life and freedom and peace, whether they realize it or not. John Owen says that his major pastoral care, when he has pastoral care appointments, he spends all his time trying to tell Christians they're no longer in bondage to what they're struggling with. They're no longer under the domination and the slavery and the imprisonment of their addictions and their things that they struggle with. They're no more under that. And he has to convince Christians, you're not there, you're over here now. And then he says, when I talk to non-Christians, I have to convince them, you're not over here in Freedom. You're over here in bondage. And that's his major pastoral care, he says, that he does all the time. He was a Puritan in the 1600s. Gosh, they're not relevant at all today. What Jack needs and what we need, when we can't seem to change in an area, we need to hear the good news of something that's already done. No more bondage. Now, you are free to struggle with sin in a battle you ultimately cannot and will not ever lose. You don't struggle with sin as a loser. You struggle with sin as a winner because Jesus already won. So when you're in the muck and mire of it and you're in the temporary and remaining enslavements of it, and difficulties of it. You need to swim in the gospel of no more bondage. God sent his son to end sin. Legally, no condemnation. Experientially, no bondage. Verse 1, verse 2. So how did God end sin in the sending of his son? How did he do that? Verse 3. God ended sin in the sending of his son by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for a sin offering, for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Find that phrase, the likeness of sinful flesh. This means total identification with. This is so powerful. It's not a partial identification with. It's not a surface measurement or similar identification with, it's a total identification with. So, in other words, Jesus totally identified with sinful flesh. You know what that means? Jesus became sin. Jack. Jesus became your sexual sin. Jill. Jesus became your incredible pain that you're feeling right now. And he became your rage and your anger. He became it. And when he became it, God condemned it. So he wouldn't condemn you. And by condemning your sin, he broke it. He sets you free legally and experientially. You're now in a new way to live, a way according to the Spirit. The only way your heart and my heart's gonna change is when you deeply feel that reality and get that reality and battle with those particular areas that you struggle with, with that reality. But you need something a little bit more. That's good stuff. It's good to know that there's no more bondage. It's good to know that there's no condemnation. But you need to know, and you need to feel deep in your heart, that God sent his sinless son for you. And Jesus said, I will. I The sinless one, the perfect one, the prince of all princes. I will become ugly. I will become broken. I will become messed up. I will become fear. I will become death. I will become rejection. I will become all pain. because they're my brothers and my sisters and I love them. God sent his son because he loves you. And when you and I get that, there, right there, is all the intimacy and all the love and all the beauty and all the healing that you and I are looking for that we try to find in other sinful stuff. Jack, there's the intimacy, the love, the beauty, the healing you're looking for. You're looking for it in an image and you get it completely in Jesus. Now I'm hearing my wife say, this is a good place to end, Jeff. This is a really good place to end. But I got one more thing I need to say and then we're done. Let's end with Jill. Can we end with Jill and then call it a day? Remember, Jill's married to Jack. She's stuck in pain and anger. So, what do you do when you're stuck? First of all, Jill should feel pain. And Jill should feel anger. Because she was sinned against. You and I, and Jill, and everyone that's sinned against, are not made to be sinned against. So, when you're sinned against, it hurts. When you're sinned against, you get angry. And that is normal, that is human. In fact, if you don't, something's wrong with you. Even worse than whatever else you're struggling with. Marriage has the power to greatly impact the self. What I mean by the self is that, that innermost being part of you that Paul talks about in almost every letter. The innermost being part of you where you derive a sense of yourself, where you derive a sense of security and confidence, where you derive a sense of worthiness and being enough, and being what we would call religiously righteous or a sense of being justified, that self, that identity, that marriage has the power to impact that because marriage is the deepest human friendship God has given and designed. So it has power to help it and it has power to hurt it. Marriage has the power to actually, because of that friendship, help someone become their better self, their future self, Ephesians 5. Or marriage has the power to attack it and tear it down. And so when you, when you get sinned against like that, you should feel pain and you should feel anger. But here's the question. How does, how does Jill keep her pain and anger from becoming mega pain and mega anger? How does she keep it from consuming her life? How does she keep it from decreating her piece by piece, from overwhelming her and actually being her Lord and her God and her Savior? How does she do that? You know what the answer is? She has to have a solid self. She has to have a self that Jack can't touch. She has to have a self that no person and no circumstance can tear down or decreate. She has to have a solid self. Now, watch. We could say it this way she has to have a solid salvation. Now watch what happens in verse 4. Verse 4 is the result, it's the purpose of what Jesus does in totally identifying with us in his death and in his perfect life. So in becoming our sin and becoming our righteousness, here's the result. Here's the solid self. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's passive voice, be fulfilled, which means that God does it to you. God does it. God fulfilled it. It's an aorist tense, which means it's a completed action done in the past. So it's finished, it's accomplished, it's done. It's not a fulfilling. It's not not sanctification here. It's justification. The perfect requirements of the law are fulfilled in you and in me and in Jill. She is beautiful. She is worthy. She is acceptable. She is favored. She is rejoiced over She has a solid self. You gotta swim in there. When you're being sinned against, you gotta swim in there because the person's sin does not sink yourself. You have a solid self. Her husband's sexual sin cannot touch the deepest self She doesn't have to prove herself. She doesn't have to defend herself. She has herself in the one of another. I guess that's it. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled. That means no more condemnation. That means no more bondage. Where are you going to swim? Where are you going to swim?